0: Thank you. Really appreciate y'all. It's so good to be here with you guys. Hey, why don't we do this, though? So if we have any law enforcement, veterans, first responders in the room, with those of you that have served us in that way stand up? I'd like to acknowledge you in the room that have served us in that capacity. God bless each and every one of you guys. Well, so good to be here with you all. Uh, to kind of paint the picture a little bit of what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams. On the last deployment, I was involved in, we're out in Iraq, and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figured the best way to do that is to not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. Well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good, because we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure at that point the ICE was ready for us to be passing that baton of responsibility off to them, so we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things hit the fan. And so they're starting from scratch, hitting the streets. They're trying to get some intel, and they find this source that informs them about this man that's an Iraqi policeman. Yeah, wears that uniform by day, but at night, back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And to kind of give you an idea of the type of character that makes a suicide vest, oftentimes the guys that manufacture these things are not very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. In fact, they have such a difficult time finding somebody to raise their hand and volunteer. In one instance, they couldn't find anybody, so what did they do? Well, they went off and they found two mentally handicapped women. And they strapped these vests onto them, and they directed them into a marketplace, shoved them off. And these guys watch from a distance like cowards, setting it off with the remote, killing these women, and obviously so many more. So this kind of gives you an idea of the type of character that we're up against. But the ISOF, they've got this guy's number. You know, they figured out where he lives. They're presenting to us this plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract, and it all checks out, looks pretty good. And then they had one complaint. They felt they got shot at more than we did in the teams. They thought it had to do with the color of our uniforms. We're like, really? The color of our uniforms? Not the way we shoot, move, communicate. Nothing to do with tactics. You guys think it's the uniform? And you can see it on their faces. They're convinced of it. And so the request was, would you be willing to maybe take off your American-colored uniforms and for this final operation, put on our ISOF-colored uniforms? But, all right, you want us to put on your uniforms in hopes that we get that we blend in with you in hopes that we get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms. But the funny thing is this. You know, my dark complexion, start growing out a little facial hair, then get on one of these Iraqi uniforms. I'm walking around on base, and I got my teammates kind of looking at me strange. I'm like, what's up? They're like, hey, Williams, you're starting to blend in with these guys around here. I'm embracing that moment, standing up in the Humvee on this final op. I'm in that section called the turret, and I got a weapon right there in front of me on this particular night. It's the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you in the room that might not know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. (laughs) Got my night vision goggles on, looking through my green little world, going over the mental inventory. I'm thinking about all the things I know about this night, how it's going to go. Weapon, headspace and time, ready to go. Know where this guy lives. Plan how we're going to get in. Grab him. Extract. And one unique thing I know about this operation that really just makes it different than every other operation I know. This is it. This is the final operation. Couldn't help but to think about it. I'm standing there going, man, just a matter of days from now, I'm going to be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time. To get thrown into what I could say was by far the absolute worst circumstances we'd been in on this entire deployment as we find ourselves getting set up on an ambush. And now, suddenly, we're engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, do what we do best in the teams that I think led to the obvious conclusion. I'm standing alive before you this morning. But it is worth remembering that it doesn't always work out that way. And we need to remember that our freedoms are not free when you consider the cost it's paid for in the currency of our soldier's blood on the battlefield. And there's spiritual truth to that. Have you ever thought about the spiritual truth, the significance is, while these guys shed their blood for our earthly freedom, eternal freedom is not free, paid for by the shed blood of the Savior at the cross. And so... More on how that ambush played out in just a moment. If I could kind of share with you a little bit of this road to becoming a seal. And I'm going to share with you a story from the Bible out of Second Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman, who I think you'll quickly see, had there been seals during his time, he would have been one of them. But I think a good starting point really is, how did this all kick off? Fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, Golden West. At that time, I didn't have any big plans. And that saying is very true, that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was the aim at that time. And so I'm sitting in the school parking lot about to take finals where I'm failing. And I'm thinking, man, I'm turning out to be a loser. All my peers are passing me by. I'm not even making it at the local community college level. And so I'm brainstorming. How do I turn this around? I got the perfect plan in the truck. I know what to do. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman. I'm thinking deadliest catch, right? By far, one of the most dangerous jobs. There's bragging rights in that. And I almost went with that, when the other idea about joining the military and not just that, being a part of the most elite, going through that most difficult, grueling training. I know what I wanna be, I wanna be a Navy SEAL. And so I'm sitting in the school parking lot about to take finals where I just make up my mind. That's what I'm gonna do with my life, I'm gonna be a SEAL. And so my first order of business is this, if I'm gonna be a frogman, I don't need to go to school anymore. Stirred the truck up and took off out of that parking lot, never took those tests. Of course, I gotta let the, the news to my dad, bad news, good news, kind of presented that way. I let him know the bad news. Of course, he's face facepalming. I'm failing all these classes. What's the good news? I'm waiting for that. It's all right, Dad. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so I remember him looking at me. And I can understand. Looking back, I could put myself in his shoes. I mean, here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it to the local community college. And now he's informing you, it's all right, Dad. I'm going to be a SEAL. And so I remember him just trying to be that voice of reason. Like, hey, son, just so you know, joining the military is not like anything you've ever done in the past. It's not like playing ball or skateboarding or going to the local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military, maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training. Hey, just to be clear, you will still be in the military and you're probably gonna pick, pick up a job like chipping paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. If you can't tell, those words really stuck with me there. But it was probably one of the most motivational speeches a guy like me could have received at that time. I need that sometimes. You imply that you think I can't do something. Ooh, I'm bolting down on it. I want to do it even more. And so I realized actions speak louder than words. And so days are going by as I'm preparing. Then one day, he invites me inside in his room. He says, you want to do this? Now He's confronting me. You want to be a SEAL? Yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, great. I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget, as I'm panning over my head to that screen, I'm thinking, my dad does not know any Navy SEALs. What is this? And all it says in this email is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? I'm like, play? like, Dad, you met some guy off the internet who says he wants to play with me, and you're arranging this meeting in a beach parking lot. Oh, he's a SEAL, son. I'm like, all right, if you really want me to. Well, as it turns out, there was more of a conversation that took place on a phone call prior to that email. I didn't find out about till months later. But I'll give you guys the backstory up front. So on the phone, my dad's telling this guy, hey, look, my son wants to be a SEAL. But here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do, what I need you to do is I need you to just crush him. Bury him. Beat this desire of becoming a SEAL out of him. Guy thought about it. That was his reply. Can Chad come out and play tomorrow? So I'm meeting up with this guy in Oceanside, California, beach parking lot. He spots me right away. You, Chad? I'm looking at him like, guy looks the part. He's like something Michelangelo carved out. Like, yes, sir. He's like, all right, Bubba, get on over here. Long story short, I find myself way out there in the wetlands on a dirt trail where he says he's going to catch up with me. He let me go take the lead. And I'm looking over my shoulder, not seeing this guy. And by now, he should be there 15 minutes into this. And as I'm running a little bit more, I start getting this idea in my head. Like, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up. And I remember celebrating, looking back again, like a scene at a Terminator 2. Remember that dude that can morph into knife hands and chase down the move? That's the SEAL coming down that trail like a T-1000. I mean, he's like a canine let out of the back of a squad car closing in. Catches up to where I am, and I never saw what was coming next as the physical assault begins. He is punching me right in the stomach, just getting impaled, knocked to the ground, wind knocked out of me. Now he's jumping on top of me. I still remember the sound of the threads of my shirt just ripping as this guy's ragdolling me, screaming in my face, feeling the spit rain down, hitting me, the cheek, the forehead. And you got to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. Remember... At the time, the only intel I'm operating on is some guy, my dad bit off the internet, I'm thinking, child predator, ah, like this is happening. As he's screaming in my face, suddenly these words come through. He says, you wanna be a Navy SEAL, you better stay three paces behind me. Something right there, everything just clicked. Right into gear, I realized this is it, this is for real. And it's not later on in SEAL training I'm gonna be called upon to have that mentality of, and that heart of die before you quit. Like it or not, it's right here, right now. I don't want it to be now, but this is the moment that's going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so he said it one more time. Three paces, turns, takes off, and all I could say is looking back, what took place in the next handful of miles was by far, even after all of SEAL training, by far the most difficult singular workout I'd ever gone through. I should call it a beatdown session, this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Halvinston. But we finally get to this point where he's circling up, pacing back and forth. He looks like he wants to fight. I'm just trying to look at the ground. No direct eye contact. Don't set this guy off. Just use your peripherals. (laughs) And he breaks this really awkward tension by asking me, by pointing again that day, he goes, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? I thought about it. I told him it came from the heart. I'll die before I quit. Well, he just gets a big smile. He goes, great, you want to meet up again in front of the workout tomorrow? And now I'm thinking, like, dude, are we gonna address the flashback this guy had on the trail? Like, and I'm like, don't bring it up. You might trigger that again. So I just kind of thumbs up. Well, thankfully, from that point forward, it was never like that again. He got on the phone after that, told my pops what's up. Look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start training him. So from that point forward, I met with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvinstem, and thankfully, it was no longer this beat down. It became more of a building up. I moved on in life from being Bubba, I was always Bubba, to suddenly one day I become junior. You know, he's like really taking me under his wing. And he is an extraordinary Navy SEAL. We're gonna do a little Q&A if we have time. I can save some of that for the Q&A, but let me just rattle off some records. Youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training, completed at 17 years old. World Champion pentathlete, the fastest Navy SEAL on the SEAL training obstacle course. Only man at the time on the TV program called Man vs. Beast, he raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course and on national television pulled ahead of the monkey on monkey bars. He beat the thing. You can't make it up any better. And so as you can imagine, through this time, he trained me up, and so I am ready, and I sign up. And now I've got this date, it's set. I'm shipping off for boot camp. He takes an opportunity, as he put it, to go overseas one last time. He's hopping on the phone. He leaves before I leave. All right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. He says, I want you to know something, though, that I've never told anyone, I've ever trained before. I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. To hear those words from my mentor, I'll never have the words to describe how much that meant. And so he's reminding me of the timeline, how he's going to be gone for a couple months. I'll do boot camp for about a couple months. And by the time I start, start SEAL training in Coronado, San Diego, where it all goes down, he'll be back. He says, I'm going to see him make it through. So he said goodbye. get off the phone. All right, see you, Scott. So he's gone. I'm about to go. As days are going by, he's gone. Television is on one day. And who do I see on TV? I see a picture of Scott, my mentor, on TV, smiling, and I'm like, "What is this? He's on TV again for something? I'm just trying to figure out what is this all about." And then I see in the lower third of the screen Scott's birth date, followed by a dash, and it says March 31st, 2004. And before I could process in my mind the very obvious meaning of that, it just wasn't translating in my head. It switches from a smiling image of Scott to graphic video footage of a vehicle engulfed in flames. Very similar to what you'll see if you turn on the news today. What's going on in Israel and the Gaza Strip. As his vehicle is engulfed in flames, turned out to be the very vehicle he was in. Along with these three other Americans. And now these insurgents that ambushed the vehicle, they videotaped everything. And so they're recording as they are mutilating their bodies with sticks and rods. Finding rope and wrapping it around their legs. Hooking them up to vehicles. Parading their bodies through the streets of Fallujah. And it's crazy to think that as we speak, this is going on over there in Israel right now on that strip. There are some evil savages, some sickness that is out there. And so you can see the glee on these guys' faces as they're celebrating over what they're doing. And they find this rope wrapping them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge. And they set their bodies on fire. And then they're looking into a camera, chanting over and over in Arabic is the graveyard of Americans. is the graveyard of Americans. I think, needless to say, I'll never have the words to describe that moment, all the surrounding moments. I went through the full spectrum of how you deal with, you know, those types of that grief. And I'll be honest with you all, I landed on a sense of revenge. Thankfully, those reasons matured along the way. I didn't stay there. But I'll tell you what, revenge is quite the fuel that burns bright. And it will get you through some things, but it's a nasty fuel to be living on. And so I just kind of became determined, I'm going to get some get back from my mentor. I remembered his last words to me on the phone call when he says, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. That became the biggest motivator right there for me. And this is worth addressing how we all deal with adversity. That's one form of it. But if anyone in this room knows anything, we know that adversity is a pretty broad brush. It comes in a lot of different forms. And everyone in this room has faced adversity because you don't make it this far in life without having gone through it. And the thing is, it doesn't come in one episode. It comes in multiple episodes, multiple seasons. And so maybe you're going through the good times right now. Maybe you are basking in the sunlight and enjoy that. But just know this, and I don't say this in terms of being a downer, but in terms of prior preparation. Know this, that that storm is coming. There is going to be a moment where you are dashed upon the rocks. And it's what you do in those types of moments that really depend upon, hey, what type of man are you? not just in the business world, but this is whole household stuff. What type of husband are you? What type of father, grandfather are you when things really go bad? And so while we can't control the fact that we're gonna face adversity, none of us gets to custom pick the adversity that we go through. It just invades your life, like some kind of tsunami or hurricane. You have no choice in that, but guess what? You do still have a choice. And what I think is the most important determining factor In terms of moving forward, you have a choice in how you respond. You decide whether or not you're going to allow that adversity to be what we could call a wing or a weight. Are you going to allow it to be a weight that just sinks you, leaves you knocked down, never to get back up again? People see what he got hit with and they go, oh yeah, look at him. He's out for the count. He's never resurfacing. Or do you find a wing in the moment somehow, which is really just a way to rise to the occasion, what we call in the SEAL teams being forged by adversity? And so adversity will either be that thing in your life that causes you to utterly fail or you will be forged by it. And where that forging process begins is somewhere in the circumstance. And all I could share with you in terms of inspiration is I found it remembering that phone call when he said, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. So I wrote his name on the inside, bill of my hat, going through training. And honestly, my thought was this. When I looked at his hat, when I was suffering going through training... I would look at his name and I would just think to myself, you have to take me out of here in a body bag before I ever voluntarily ring a bell three times and quit on that name. It's not happening. And it didn't happen. So I made it through. Bud's class 254 started the class of 173 guys by graduation day. Only 13 of that original class number still standing there. And I'll say that graduation day was by far one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life because I just achieved the ultimate. I remember looking up thinking, Scott, we did this. I've got family and friends there. As I've got that moment where I'm getting pinned in the chest. Hey, no longer that loser in the parking lot in Golden West. No, you're now, this is your new identity. A member of SEAL Team 1. I've got the trident. Happiest, most fulfilling moment. But I'll be real with you all. It didn't take more than 24 hours before the wind slowly came out of that sail. And everything seemed to tip over and slowly go downhill from a, like, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around why. It's like everything's just circling the drain. And it was years later, I heard these words I want to share with you from a Christian philosopher where I thought that nailed it. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved. That which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved, that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, in the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there is, again, just by the law of averages, something everyone in this room is familiar with at least to some degree. Sometimes we talk about it as the human condition. Sometimes we refer to it as, uh, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Not quite satisfied, not quite fulfilled with where you're at. Well, what do you want, man? I don't know. I guess I just wish I had a little bit more. And so we buy in this belief that what we're lacking, what we're missing is just a little bit more. And then we will be fulfilled. And so as men, we come up with these goals, we get them in our crosshairs, we're aiming at them, we're hungering for them, and you put in the work, and you get there and you eat that moment up and it's enjoyable, but what happens? The satisfaction doesn't last like you expected it to. So what do we do here? We don't panic, we just step back for a moment, we put on our little thinking cap and after a little introspect, all of a sudden a light bulb goes off on our head. Oh, I know why this didn't give me lasting fulfillment, it's simple, I didn't go for something big enough. If I want it to last, I know what I need to do. I need to raise the bar. I need to go to that next rung of the ladder. And so maybe you think that's a certain level of education. Maybe you think that's a certain salary. Maybe what you're missing in your life is some relationship goals. I just need a spouse. Maybe what we need is a bigger house. Maybe we need some children running around the home to give me my meaning, my fulfillment. But what happens is you keep moving this bar, thinking this is going to deliver, and all you do is you find yourself hungry and thirsty all over again. It's like a vicious cycle, and seemingly there just is no end point. But there is an end point. And that's kind of the whole point to that quote, one of the loneliest moments. See, I'd say the big question is this, guys. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. Nope. You can't do that this time. Well, why not? Because you're at the last rung of the ladder, sir. You can't say, well, I'll just climb this mountain, gain a little more elevation. Nope. Not this time. You're at the peak of the mountain And there's nothing left to climb. And so like all the other times before, you're hungry, you're thirsty for more. But unlike all of the other times, this time there is no next to move on to. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved, that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, in the end, it lets him down. We see this all the time playing out. Many of you have gained your version of the whole world. You see the professional athletes out there, the rock stars, the movie stars that have gained their version of the whole world. Imagine having a job like Anthony Bourdain, get to travel the world, see different cultures, paid to eat food in other places. And he's secretly so miserable underneath it all, he's taking his own life in a hotel room. And we go, why? Like, why, man? Don't you know what you have? Don't you know what people would trade just to be in your shoes? Maybe that's just it, though. Really having all the world has to offer isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And that doesn't scratch an itching ear. That's not a very palatable message right there. But it's a fact of life, and I think Jesus framed it best when he says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? I guess you could say for me becoming a seal, to me that was my version of gaining the whole world. The issue at that time was my soul. My soul was not right with my maker. And here's the reality is that if you have no peace with your creator, have no expectation experience any kind of peace while you're here in this life on earth. I didn't know that was the answer at the time or the problem. I'm just looking back, like reverse engineer it. That's what was going on. But along the way, as I get put on SEAL team one, we're going through our workup, our process to go deploy. And again, I'm just fueled by revenge. I'll get some get back. I find myself attending an event where that 2 Kings chapter 5 passage was opened up, this story of Naaman. And I'll give you the story of Naaman. He's his commander. He's had great success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him. Even the king enjoys Naaman's company. So the status that he has is this mighty man of valor. It's getting him into places. He's at the VIP meet and greet, rubbing shoulders with the king. He's this mighty man of valor. Sounds like he could have been a seal, but he had leprosy. How bad is leprosy? Well, Jesus, looking back, specifically said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. It's terminal. He's a dead man walking. And so now circle back and picture Naaman's life like this, if you would. So much for all that success. So much for that outward man. What's really going on underneath the armor that we don't see, Naaman? What's really going on underneath that clothing that doesn't quite meet the eye? Well, what's really going on underneath it all is he's literally deteriorating. He's falling apart. He is a dead man walking. In a room this size, I imagine, just like I that night, Many of you can relate with that man as well because when you think about it, what type of man are you on the outside? What kind of armor are you wearing in front of them all, in front of the coworkers or the family members and friends when in reality, underneath it all, they have no idea and you feel as though you are that dead man walking. And so I find myself listening. No doubt about it, Naaman's tried everything he could do to fix himself, but remember Jesus says nobody's done this during his time. There's an unsung hero in this story, this little servant girl that speaks up. She kind of operates as evangelist here. And she says, if only my master with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. She's talking about the God of Israel over there. So he decides to go. And keep in mind, this is enemy-occupied territory. It's a 150-mile trip. He needs approval from his king. He gets it. And he's bringing along the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars. He's bringing his treasure. He's just thinking, man, I'll pay you off just giving my life again. Gets there to the door, and the guy doesn't even answer the door. Sends a servant to the door. Relays a message. If you just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. Well, Naaman's response was he became, the Bible says, furious. I mean, could you imagine? He just came all this way with his men, and he gets, in a, in a sense, just treated like a casual, like a normal. This guy won't even give him a face-to-face. And so it's all recorded in the scriptures as he did what next? Turned, began to go away in a rage, and he began to vent out loud, saying, what His expectation was starting off with, I expected this guy to come out of his place. He thought he was going to come out of his place and really do something special effects. He thought he was going to be like raising his hands in the air, calling the name of the Lord is God, and then just wiping the leprosy away. But instead, he gets treated like a normal. It infuriates him. He's leaving in this rage. And if he continues in that direction, what happens? Remember, it's terminal. He's a dead man walking. If you haven't caught it yet, what's Naaman's real problem here? Is it the leprosy or is it a much deeper problem? I heard it. It's ego. It's pride. The leprosy is just a surface symptom of a much deeper issue that all of us as men, as human beings, battle with. And so Naaman's surrounded by some men that care about him. And we need to be these men in the lives of our pals. They're like, man, I don't know exactly how this works, but I know this much. We need to get our Naaman back over there in front of that God of Israel. So they're just trying to use logic. Come on, Naaman, you know if this guy came out, gave you some big great thing to do, something that would have stroked that ego, you would have done it. I mean, what if the the guy did come out? Oh, Naaman, what an honor. The mighty man of valor. Your reputation precedes you. If we got a CrossFit exercise for you to do, if you finish the wad in time, you'll be fixed of your leprosy. Naaman would be like, show me where to start. But because it's such a simple thing, just go wash and be clean, you know what it seemed like to him? A foolish thing. Well, don't miss that. In case you don't know, it's exactly what the New Testament says about the preaching of the cross. It says it's foolishness to who? Those that are perishing. Well, no doubt about it, Naaman is in a state of perishing. But something these guys say, it resonates, it gets through. And I think that he understands now, you know what? It is not the water that's going to cleanse me. I do have cleaner water where I'm from. It doesn't work. What it is, is the God of Israel, that if I am faithful If I do what he wants me to do, I'm faithful, he will be faithful, and he will do his part, and his part is the heavy lifting. And so as he's making that 180 to go for it, there's a whole lot more going on than a mere physical 180. We could say that there is a spiritual 180 happening. I think he understands, in order for me to live, I must die to self. This walk is essentially a walk to his own funeral. So that as he dips into that water, as that armor comes off that would need to go, what's really coming off is what needed to go all along. The pride, the ego, dipping down in an act of faith comes up that seventh time. And in the scriptures, the literal picture in the Hebrew is this. He had brand new skin like that of a baby. Imagine the filth of leprosy. It is a mess being spotted and blotted and blemished, just struck through with it. Brand new skin. And the credits don't roll in the story right there. It's not over. Just as God provided a solution, a salvation for Naaman, he's provided a salvation for you and I as well. But first we have to understand our condition. If you haven't picked up on it yet, this story in 2 Kings chapter five, as Jesus says, if you knew the scriptures, you would know they testify of me. Jesus is all over this Second Kings chapter five story. This condition that we all suffer from, it's not leprosy, but you could say that we all apart from God are spiritual lepers, We are spotted and blotted and blemished in sin. The leprosy is a picture of sin. And just like Naaman couldn't do anything to get the leprosy off of himself, is there anything you and I can do to get sin off of ourselves? We cannot, but God provided a way, not by dipping into the Jordan, but you could say this, God dipped his son down into the world. That's Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he live? A sinless life. He lived a holy, perfect life harmless life. He was not spotted or blotted or blemished. He was pure. And then he goes to the cross. And at the cross, here's what took place. Here's a picture that works for us guys. He traded skin with you and I. He took our sin, our leprosy upon himself so that we could be switched and lavished with God's grace and mercy as though we lived this sinless, holy, righteous, perfect life that Jesus lived. He died in our place. Didn't just die though. Three days later, he rose again. And by conquering the grave, this is God's vindication of Jesus that he was no blasphemer. He truly was the son of God as he claimed to be. And it is his validation of his teaching. Teachings like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. No one is even offering you salvation. Nobody even can because they haven't lived the perfect life that he has lived. So he offers it and just like Naaman, we all have to kind of have that Naaman point in our life that turning point Jesus says if anyone wants to come after me you want this salvation what must they do if anyone wants to come after me the scriptures say they must deny self that's where you come to a point where you just look at your life collectively and you realize ah i am i am a sinful man i am a work in progress but i'm not going to try and sweep things under the rug i'm not going to try and grade myself on a curve i'm a mess and that Jesus is holy and pure, and there's nothing I could do to earn my own way into heaven. We all fall short, but I see what He did, and so it's not God let me in because me. In a sense, you could say it's God let me into heaven because He. And so we have to come to that point where we turn from our sin, we repent of it, which is not just sorry I got caught. It's, I'm so sorry. I want to change. And what do you do? You put your faith and trust in Jesus to do what to do what he says he will do, the heavy lifting, save you from your sin. They will name him Jesus, it says in Matthew 121, for he will save his people from their sin. So our part, faith and trust in him, his part, heavy lifting, the moment any man does that, you don't have my word on it, you've got the word of God on it, he says, he will remember your sin no more. He'll remove it as far away as the east is from the west. Remember that leprosy? Wiped away, blotted out. The New Testament says, repent and be changed that your sins may be blotted out, that times refreshing may come. March 14, 2007, as an active duty seal, I heard that message, responded to that message in that way. And I'll just say to you that the scriptures are true. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. My outlook was completely different because I had peace in my creator now. And so the way I looked at it is I'm a seal for Christ. I wish I had time to hit the details of that final lot. Maybe if we have time for a question, but let me cut to the chase is that while we all came home alive out of that situation, it doesn't always work out that way. And I just want to highlight a couple of names that have paid the ultimate. One would be Michael Monsour, who was a U.S. Navy SEAL. He was a local guy. And what did he do? He jumped on top of a hand grenade where he could have saved himself to cover it, to protect other SEALs that were on the roof with them. He absorbed the blast. But because of what he did, every one of these other guys lived. And so I'd say you could mark these words down as very true. Greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. My friend Scott, although he was killed and hung from that bridge, it wasn't in vain. One of the last things he was talking about was when I go over there, perhaps I can make a difference. And so he's a picture of that greatest act of love. But finally, the one who spoke those words of greater love, none other than Jesus. And he said those words prior to going to the cross. And so think about the cross this way, that Justice Mike Mansoor jumped on a hand grenade, absorbed the blast of a grenade, why? So others could live? Consider the fact that Jesus, in a sense, jumped on the grenade. What did he do? He, he covered the wrath that we deserved. He took our sin, why? So that we could pass by that grenade, as it were, and live with him. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, but there for freedom's sake, never forget that this Jesus, he was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? so that he could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. And so greater love is known than this one that lays on his life for his friends. You can see it in men like Mike Monsour and Scott Helvinston, the greatest picture of all, they'll look to the cross. That's that proper perspective of that King of Kings, that Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? Amen? I want to open up an opportunity for any man to make that profession of faith in Christ. If you would like to do that, repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. We're going to pray together right now. And so if we could just pray together, if that's you, just pray from a sincere heart and you'll have God's word on it, what happens next. So Lord Jesus, repeat these words out loud after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on that cross for me and rose again. I turn from my sin now and I ask you to be my savior and be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I think we got time for maybe one. One question. And while we're getting the microphone, whoever has that question, just a, a real quick thing too. You know, once you become a follower of Christ, it's like when you do life on your own, it's like decaf. It just doesn't deliver. You know, but you can say, forget doing life for me, I'm gonna do it for thee. Whatever I do in word or deed, do That's all in the this, name this, of this. the Lord Jesus. And that could be that you're a corporate worker, a construction worker, whatever it is. And so I was a seal for Christ at that time. And I, one thing I just wanna briefly share with you all without stepping into it too much is, uh, What am I up to now? Well, part of being a seal for Christ is in Huntington Beach. I'm getting involved in a run for city council. And I just want to make mention of a couple other guys that are here. If you guys could stand up. Butch Twining and Don Kennedy. Got them in the room. And so these guys are my running mates for Huntington Beach. It is said that all that's required for evil to triumph is for good men to stand back and do nothing. And we're not going to stand back. We're getting involved in Huntington Beach. And so Butch Twining, Don Kennedy, Chad Williams, we're running for a slate of three, three spots in Huntington Beach. Make you guys aware of that. All right, one question. One. Me? All right, raise a hand. Let's get a microphone to him. Anyone got a question? That'd be good because the only one. March fifteenth, two 2007, where were you when you found Christ? It was March 14, 2007, and it was basically on the grounds of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Uh, The sanctuary is being renovated at that time, and so we were outside in a field. Uh, Yeah, and so I was a bunch of white little chairs and wood chips on the ground, Dennis Akigenia. like, who is this character like doing this finger picking on a guitar? And it was Greg Laurie that shared that message that day. Yeah, so uh, real quick too, thank you for that question. I want to make mention of the, the book we got in the back, but also the frog. And the SEAL teams were known as frog men. It's on the shirt. The reason we wear that is to honor and remember the fallen frog, man. That's what that frog means. And then, and then the words on the back of the shirt is greater love is known than this one that lays on his life for his friends. It's John 15, 13, but no scripture reference. Reason why? Because whenever you're out and about and people want to ask you about the shirt, if it had John 15, 13 on it, the people that need to know about it, they won't ask you. They're like, oh, it's a Christian shirt. Almost. Ah. <laughs> but it's not there. And so they see the frog and it's your opportunity to share with them. They want to know what's that frog mean. You share with them, this represents seals that shed their blood for your earthly freedom. And they're like, yeah. And I like those words on the back too, that greater love thing. Who is that, like Socrates? Like, nope. And that's your chance to tell them about the Savior that just as these guys shed their blood for your earthly freedom, he shed his blood for your eternal freedom. And they're almost always the same response. I never thought about it that way. I realize we're over time. you guys want to know what happened though in that ambush? Yeah. All right, you got to get the book. It's in the back. Yeah. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for your time.